hello. Thanks for coming on this glorious day. To sit in this dark room and listen to me plug my book. I appreciate that. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's um, selfie. Is the book is called selfie? Um, how um, uh, how we became so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us, right? So, so it really, it's a kind of history of the Western self, um, the history of Western individualism. Really, it's a kind of the story of how we have become in these kind of individualists, where you know uh, where it started, uh, how it's travelled, and where we've got here. So, it's a very kind of you know, it's, um, it's, it, uh, it tells a story in, in, in not that many pages, so there's quite a lot, <laughs> there's quite a lot left out. Um, but, but, but I focus very much in on this kind of story of kind of Western individualism. But the book begins really um, in a kind of unusual place, and that's with lots of people killing themselves. <laughs> so the book begins asking a really important question, I think, about the self, and that is, what, you know, what is it about the self that causes it to kind of attack itself? So what is it that causes, you know, I, I, um, you know, I've suffered from kind of suicidal thoughts before, I'm sure lots of people are familiar, I mean, lots of people in the room have. Two, I've interviewed lots, I've done, written lots in the past about suicide. And one of the things that, um, uh, the, 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 the kind of commonalities uh, in all, lots and lots of the people that I've spoken to who have either survived suicide or who are parents or partners of people who have um, killed themselves is this idea of perfectionism. It's this idea that these people had very high expectations for who they ought to be, who they should be, and what they found in their life was that these expectations were thwarted again and again and again and again. And eventually it just becomes too much for people. The self kind of it almost folds in on itself. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, I started sort of, you know, becoming aware of some of the other sort of statistics that are sort of going around at the time. I was reading in the New York Times about how suicide rates in America are a 30-year high um, in the UK, um, although suicide rates themselves are, are, have been pretty stable since the 80s. Suicidal ideation, people were thinking about killing themselves, has really gone up. Um, quite significantly in recent years. Um, in 2003.8, um, adult Britons had reported suicide thoughts, and in 2014, that had gone up to kind of 30.4%, um, so almost like doubled in those in, in a amount of years. Uh, we're seeing rises in um, people self-harming, rises in body dysmorphia, rises in um, uh, uh, eating disorders, and this is not a, particularly a gender-specific thing. You know, um, um, body dysmorphia amongst men is, is sort of going through the roof. Um, as well, um, one, of the, one of the kind of um, one of the statistics that stood out for me was that, was that needle exchanges in, in, in um, UK cities have reported a 600% rise in steroid abuse uh, in the decade of 2015. That's almost all men. Anybody who's seen Love Island, that the reality show, basically, <laughs> these days, you know, in my generation, young men, we're all in the pub on ease, getting pissed, listening to Nirvana. These days, they're all in the gym, eating salads. It's quite extraordinary that there's been this huge change in in, in um, uh, body image amongst men. And I thank God, I thank thank God, I skipped, <laughs> sort of avoided that. Um, so, uh, so uh, and so, so you know, I, I sort of contacted some of these psychologists that study perfectionism and, st and are studying all these kinds of things. And um, of course, a lot of them talk about social media. A lot of talks about in the internet and because these are such new technologies the data isn't really that out there at the moment what one of them told me was that we don't have data that can absolutely tell us for sure uh, this is to do with um, use of social media um, we don't know that yet but what, what, one of these guys Gordon Flett who's a Canadian um, guy a professor of psychology he's one of the top kind of guys of perfectionism he says he says that we are we are living in a 
uh, world that has become more perfectionistic, a kind of age of perfectionism, where so we're not becoming, we're not changing as people, but our environment is changing. So one of the ways that he defines what is a perfectionist, what is somebody who experiences perfectionist thinking, is it's somebody who's particularly sensitive to signals of failure in their environment. So if you're particularly sensitive to feeling like a failure, that means you're a bit higher on that kind of perfectionist kind of trait. Um, uh, level, and he, you know, so he, you can look at all kinds of, you know, look at body image, look at the, look at the kind of images that we're surrounded by. Uh, you go into high street stores in Britain, and the, and the mannequins the, on females have a, have a uh, BMI um, ratio that is actually, if if those mannequins were alive, they'd be sick, and that's what's presented to us as ideal body shape for for young women. You know, so uh, it's, it's, so that's just one one of the things. You know, we live in a neoliberal economy now, where since the 1980s. Protections have been stripped away gradually from people more and more and more. But you know, we, we, we're hardly unionised anymore. There are hardly any. You know, so business has been deregulated. Co companies aren't. Uh, are, 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 um, uh, are, there's less and less pressure on companies to look after their employees. You know, we live in a gig economy world now. Uh, so. so, so there are, you know, social media is another one. Uh, young people are, there was once a time when celebrities and stars were seen as stars, they're up in the sky, there are these exceptional people. And now since kind of the reality TV revolution and kind of Instagram, you've got young women flicking through Instagram and there's Kim Kardashian and there's Jennifer Lawrence. Oh look and there's me and there's an equivalence. We all have to feel like we have to have the bodies of, uh, you know, famous people now. So, the, so, so, the, so, so it's multifactorial. There are lots and lots of reasons behind why we, we are seeing this kind of rise in, in really serious um, uh, mental, you know, psychi uh, psychiatric um, uh, uh, um, uh, mental kind of uh, un unhappiness that's manifesting in these rises in suicidal behaviour, eating disorders, self-harm, all these other, all these other um, uh, problems. So that sort of begs the question, how do we get here? How, you know, how have we reached, come to this age of perfectionism? And so what I do there really is, is actually go back. I mean, the, the story of Western, Western individualism begins with the Greeks. But in the book, I, shot, I go back to, sort of, to, to look a bit of um, kind of the tribal self. It begins with, you know, we spent more than 90% of our time uh, on Earth living in groups of around 148 people. We were, you know, we are, we, were, we are a tribal animal. We still have these tribal brains. And that has, that has lots of ramifications uh, for the way that we uh, experience the world. I, mean, I think most people know that you know, our closest relatives in the animal kingdom are the bonobo and the chimpanzee. Um, we share more than 98% of our DNA with the chimpanzee and, and, and a common ancestor with them both. And if you look at you know, the, the, these primate groups and you can see behaviours that we share with those, it gives you a clue that perhaps this is sort of deep, deep-rooted kind of behaviours and ways of seeing the world that, 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 that go back uh, deep in time. So the people who study chimpanzees in particular, um, you know, see, see lots of commonalities in terms of how we experience living in those human tribes. So chimpanzees are like us in that they are, you know, they get by by mind, but they're like a, hello? Excuse me, could you slow down? Oh, sorry, yes, 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 so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> yeah, so, so um, uh, yeah, when you look at chimpanzee, like the social life of the chimp tribe, you see lots of commonalities with ours. You know, one of the main ones um, uh, is that they are kind of a political animal, uh, that, that, that they, uh, this, the, the, whoever's in charge of the chimpanzee troop is always changing. Every four to five years in a chimp troop, that leader changes. And of course, we see that number echoed in our human life in the political cycle, in you know, the presidential cycle, in the, ele the electoral cycles. So, so you've got these kind of strange echoes there. And um, uh, we, we have this preoccupation with hierarchy because the, who's the leader of the troop is always 
because it's always changing, it's always going up and down. So we are preoccupied with status as human beings. We are preoccupied with who's on the up and who's on the down, you know, and that's what um, uh, comprises lot of, lots of our media. And of course, that's what kind of fuels our interest in social media. You know, is this is, social media is a very new technology, but, it's, but look at the language in social media, status update, how many followers I've got. It's really these weirdly kind of tribal things, it's uh, uh, buttons it's pressing. And another really interesting um, uh, idea from that area of psychology comes from moral psychology. And this idea that, um, you know, one of, one of the things we share with the chimpanzee uh, is, is what's been called a uniquely violent pattern of intergroup progression. Uh, in the entire animal kingdom, it's only humans and chimps that behave like this, that we the attack other groups, that we, we, are, we are groupish in that way. And of course, we, you know, it, it's a psychological um, thing that happens to us these days. We have, in, you know, we, we have in-groups and out-groups. We have Corbynistas and Blairites and, you know, Mayites, and we all we are Apple fans or Android fans. You know, we can't help but living in these kind of psychological groups and it, and it affects our kind of sense of self um, and, and one of the ramifications of that is, is that when we, um, when, when we experience people breaking the codes of our particular in-group we get this kind of huge urge to kind of punish and ostracize these people and again we see that in social media of course you know we see that on Twitter we see that especially in the internet um, media you know uh, some of these kind of very kind of politically aggressive titles when people break these kind of um, codes of contact of conduct when they say something politically that we don't agree with we, we are kind of overwhelmed by this very kind of ancient primeval urges to kind of punish and ostracize these people so you know so the, so the tribal self that stuff that goes kind of before you know, the, the time when we were kind of civilized in inverted commas humans is, is really important to understanding kind of who we are today and who we are in this kind of age of perfectionism. In the book, I talk about some cases where people who have kind of fallen foul of the social media kind of police and the internet police have ended up um, committing suicide because the, you know, the, the ramifications for them have been so serious and for, for, for you know, for, for, for things that really shouldn't have been a big problem. Um, so, 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 so the tribal self, I think, is a really important kind of a way to understand, you know, you know, what this kind of world of post-internet self-obsession is uh, doing to us. Uh, then I move on to um, ancient Greece, which I, you know, I, I was fascinating to, for me because I didn't knew nothing really about you know, the ancient Greece and the beginnings of Western individualism. And there's a really interesting sort of body of um, psychology. Um, they call it the geography of thought, this idea that who we are uh, as a people is a product very much of ecology initially in ancient Greece. So in ancient Greece was a, was a, was a unique kind of part of the world. It wasn't a nation as we think of it today. It was made up of, of, of around a thousand um, uh, separate uh, city-states and the ecology of ancient Greece was, was very particular. So you couldn't really do big farming projects in ancient Greece. I know, I'm sure lots of you have been to Greece, you've seen it. There's not, any, there's not many great big fields of wheat in ancient Greece. There's all rocky mountain, uh, sort of hills descending to sea, small islands. So to get along and get ahead in ancient Greece, to, to survive and thrive, you had to be, um, uh, you, you had to become sort of a, a, a self-sufficient kind of mini industry. You had to sort of fish, trade, make olive oil. So it kind of forced the people into this very individualistic uh, economy. Um, uh, because they're on the coast, they started sort of sailing out and trading with each other. So they were kind of meeting each other and bartering and hustling in that very kind of modern individualistic way. They were also coming into contact with other cultures as they kind of were sailing out further and further and were coming across different ideas. And of course, that helped foster this kind of um, 
this uh, culture of debate where being a great debater was a, was a, um, a, a kind of a high status thing to be. Uh, because, again, because of the ecology of ancient Greece, it was a very hard place for a kind of a tyranny to take over the entire place. It was very difficult for that to happen because it was just hard to, you know, it's hard to, if you're a conqueror to, <laughs> to take over a thousand um, individual city-states. So that meant that if you did fall out with your people in your city-state, you could just up and even go to another one. It wasn't like living in other parts of the world at that time where you would just be killed or you, you know. Um, so, 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 so from the ecology comes this economy and, com and from that economy comes this individualistic kind of worldview, this idea of the human animal as not a sort of a, as an individual, individual node of uh, power and influence in the landscape rather than sort of being a kind of connected as part of the tribe. Um, and so what they do, the, the psychologists that study these effects, is they, is they compare it to East Asia, which, you know, just as two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle was walking around, you know, talking about these, about these ideas of individualism. And he believed, for example, that um, all, all humans are on this kind of natural path to perfection. And that if, if, if humans wanted to succeed and thrive, they had to do so in a state of ennobled self-love. And we see echoes of that in the self-esteem movement of the 1980s, for example. And we see it now. So you have to love yourself and value yourself if you want to succeed, these ideas. And there was a completely opposite thing happening over in China at the time. So whilst Aristotle was doing all that, Confucius was walking around in China, you know, talking about a completely other, you know, version of the ideal self. And of course, in um, East Asia, it was, it, it was, it was the opposite landscape. You had, it was all gentle, kind of rolling plains and kind of low mountains. So very easy for tyrannies to take hold. Very isolated. You didn't get many other ideas coming in to challenge your um, uh, worldview. But most importantly, to get along and get ahead in ancient China, you had to be involved in a big irrigation project, a big um, rice-growing project, a big wheat-growing project. So these are, these are team-intensive um, uh, industries, so, so you had to kind of keep your head down, you had to be part of the group, you had to privilege the group over the individual. And it's extraordinary to see, so while Aristotle was um, uh, saying, you know, that, that, that whilst in Greek stories were kind of mythologizing the heroic individual, I think um, one of the things that Richard Nisbet says was that happiness for the ancient Greek uh, was to exercise power, his powers in pursuit of excellence in a life free from constraints. Over in China, um, it was Confucius and his, uh, the, the book that was written about his views was called The Analects, in that he was saying, the superior man has nothing to compete for. Um, he does not boast of, his, his, uh, of himself. And the inferior man um, uh, uh, is, is somebody who is aware of advantage and seeks notoriety. So his view of the inferior man was almost a perfect description of what the Greeks thought was the superior man and vice versa. So it's you know, really extraordinary how these, you know, something as simple as, economy, as the economy has formed these different versions of self. And there's a huge sort of um, body of work that shows how these differences show up in us today. So one of the things that they do um, uh, is they take Westerners and people from um, the, the Confucian countries, um, China, Vietnam, uh, the Koreas, Japan, um, and, and uh, they show them uh, videos of fish of a fish tank, and in this fish tank, there's one big fish at the front. It's like a you know, flashy kind of individualistic 
or you know uh, fish doing doing this we're well, not doing that obviously literally uh, um, and then uh, and they and they um, monitor uh, where the person's eyes are moving and they only show this video for three seconds and they and they record um, every millisecond where the eyes moving and they find that Westerners tend to focus uh, on the fish at the front um, and people from the Confucian countries still today are they're, they're, they're moving around in the context and working out the relationship between things and that is why when you ask them after, what did you see? The Westerner will go, oh, there was a fish, I saw a fish. And then, but when you ask the East Asian person, they're much more likely to say, oh, there was a fish tank and there were these rocks. And so they're much more aware of the relationships between things in context. And of course you see that, there's huge amounts of manifestations you know, uh, of that that we see today. For example, as Richard Nisbet said, told me when I was interviewing him, look at the average street scene in East Asia. Look at the scene in kind of Mong Kok or Hong Kong. It can be overwhelming to the Westerner, but you know, because we just, we're used to, individual things to focus on, not these kind of hugely complex contextual environments. And look at the political situation in, in East Asia. You know, uh, they, they, they are more comfortable with um, things that we would consider to be horrific human rights abuses because they're much more, um, maybe comfortable is not the right word, they're much more able to uh, accept the suffering of the individual on behalf of the group than we are. So there are huge numbers of ramifications. And I'm not in the book arguing that one system is better than the other in any sense. Um, there's a huge problem with suicide in East Asia. South Korea, for example, has the second highest suicide rate in the world. So I'm not arguing that there is better or worse than ours. I'm just, it's not a polemic. I'm just sort of pre <laughs> presenting, presenting that. So, uh, you know, another thing that you see in, in ancient Greece is the worship of celebrities in the form of these great mythical heroes and these, you know, the worship of the perfect body. In ancient Greece, they had this idea of kalokagathia, which was, um, uh, this idea that you can judge a person's inner worth by looking at the physical form of their body, you know, which is a very toxic idea. And again, one which is very much still with us today. It's extraordinary when you see those statues of the gorgeous men uh, uh, from ancient, from two and a half thousand years ago. They could literally be walking onto Love Island or the cover of Men's Health tomorrow and they would look perfectly fine. And one of the little details of those is that they have these things called the pelvic V-line. I'm sure you know what the pelvic V-line. Very hard to get a pelvic V-line in real life. It's a really obscure thing, but they had, you know, they had that in ancient Greece and, and in these boys, you know, on the front of Men's Health have it today. It's this very sort of, sort of thing that we worship. So, 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 so then, so that's, that's that. Of course, ancient Greece kind of fell. And then what happened is that we go into the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and in Britain, um, it's, a, it's a time of, you know, it's a feudal Britain. So, you know, up to 10% of the population were slaves or serfs at the time. We were all completely under the, you know, uh, had to kind of bow to the power of the Lord of the Manor. And what we find there is this great kind of Christian influence. And again, a, a, very, a big step back from this kind of bold, optimistic, powerful Greek self. And so to get along and get ahead in medieval Britain, you had to be, you know, bow your head and uh, be subservient and accept. And it was a kind of a time of kind of fetishization of low self-esteem. So in the book, what I do next is I go and spend some time at um, a Benedictine monastery up in Scotland where they still live as they lived back in those days. And just extraordinary their ideas of the perfect self. They were, they were, they were, doing, they were singing their psalms, very beautiful peaceful sounding psalms and you can pick up a booklet that has the translation uh, of, the, of what you're reading and, and one of the translations was something like we will crush the skulls of our enemies across the wide earth it's, it's extraordinary you know to see that the tribal self emerging in this thing you know it's absolutely tribal 
Um, you know, they're absolutely chimpanzees, those monks, in their, you know, their Catholic dresses, promising to crush the skulls of their enemies across the wide earth. But also things, you know, uh, you know, saying to God, I am but a despised worm. You know, this was an absolutely this fetishization of low self-esteem because, because that was the economy of the time, to get along and get ahead in, in those centuries in Britain. You had to, you know, keep your head down. Uh, so again, you see, you see this idea of the economy of the time it, uh, influencing kind of who, who, we, who we are, who we had to be. So it's almost as if when you're, when you're born, your brain asks a fundamental question, and that's who do I have to be in this environment in order to get along and get ahead? And that becomes, you know, a, to a, a larger extent, kind of who, who we become to be as a people. So skipping forward, um, you know, I think the big um, change in our lifetimes that we've seen comes at around 1980 with the kind of birth of neoliberalism, these neoliberal ideas. Uh, and of course, there was this kind of economic chaos in the 1970s. And along comes Thatcher and Reagan, with these, you know, um, who would come upon these ideas of neoliberalism, uh, which very much came out of the, the ideas of people, including Friedrich Hayek, who is known as the economist, who's one of the, kind of the, 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 the founding fathers of neoliberalism. And he was an Austrian who saw to his great despair, the effects, you know, what happened when, uh, during the Second World War, and he was asking this, you know, tormented by this question, how can it be that my formerly civilised country has become this? And he, the, he, 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 his answer was, what, what does the communist um, state and the fascist state have in common? And that is central control of the economy. So he decided that that was not the root of all evil. If you controlled the economy, you controlled the money. And if you controlled the money, you controlled everything. So he came up with this idea that we should get rid of as much government as possible, get rid of this control over the economy, and let the markets take over instead. And he was seen as a crank for years. Um, by most people, by the, by, you know, so during the kind of post-war years, of course, it was much more a collective economy that we had. You know, it was big unionization, it was lots of regulation on banks and buildings, um, uh, b banks and um, uh, companies. It was the year of the job for life, the corporation man. And you know, and we see um, uh, a, a more collective self coming out of that collective economy. We see the hippies, um, for example, in the 60s. I mean, you see these much more, people much more comfortable with these collective ideas. And then that changes in the 80s. All that, that economy falls to bits in the 70s. So in the 80s, uh, along comes Thatcher and Reagan, bringing up these ideas of neoliberalism, Friedrich Hayek's uh, and other people's kind of ideas, and they strip away all these protections. You know, they, they strip away the welfare state, they strip away funding from us, they, 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 they attack the unions. I mean, I don't need to tell you guys what, um, <laughs> what neoliberalism is about. And, and then what happens? We just see this extraordinary change in the Western South. I mean, compare who we were in 1965 to who we were in 1985. I mean, it's an absolute revolution in the typical Westerner. And what changes then? It, it's, the, it's the economy, you know. So what was true in ancient Greece and East Asia two and a half thousand years ago is true in the 80s uh, in the West still. You know, uh, in one of the kind of chilling quotes that I discovered during my research was from Margaret Thatcher in 1981. She was being interviewed in the, um, the Sunday Times about her plans, you know, what she was going to do. And, uh, you know, she said, you know, what, 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 what I've hated over the last kind of 30 years is, is that we've been very collective. It's been very collectivist in our governments. And she said, um, uh, you know, I want to ch I'm going to change all that. Uh, that uh, and and her, her actual quote was, um, uh, and how am I going to change it? She said, uh, the method is, e is economics, but the object is to change the soul. You know, quite nice, like a sinister thing to say. But she did it. You know, she's done it. Look at who we are today. I mean, Jesus. Um, everybody wants to be this kind of self-employed entrepreneur. We're all these individual little nodes of kind of profit and 
uh, you know, the young people are on Instagram, they're all kind of brand, you know, it, it's like self as brand these days. So she, you know, to a large extent, she got her way. She changed who we were by changing the economy. It's quite extraordinary, um, uh, 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 that lessons you get. And, and why? Because you wake up today, uh, young people wake up today and they go, who have I got to be in this world to, in order to get along and get ahead? Which, you're back to these ancient Greek ideas. You've got to be a hustler. You've got to push yourself forward. You've got to be in great shape. You've got to have all the right political views. You know, this, and so you've got to have, do all these things right. So, that, so, so, you know, we get back at the beginning. It's this incredible amount of pressure on the individual self that young people are feeling today in order to, to be perfect in all the domains. And this indeed is what, you know, people are saying who are responsible for looking after the welfare of students in universities in, in, in the US and the UK. I spoke to a few of them who just said they've just seen this overwhelming pressure in young, that young people. And that was one of the quotes, have to be perfect in kind of all the domains. So that's kind of the, 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 kind of the broad thesis, really. Um, just in the last sort of five minutes to talk about kind of really the, sort of the sort of investigative heart of the book. And that really is, uh, I, I spent a long time looking at the self-esteem movement, which is quite, because that's kind of the, the life that I lived. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. You know, surrounded by these ideas of self-esteem, and, and the prevailing notion at the time, which is, like, to a great extent, kind of still with us, is this idea that if there's something, if you're sad or depressed or you're violent or there's something wrong in your life, at the root of it all is, is low self-esteem. You don't love yourself enough. If you learn to love yourself, then everything will be wonderful. And that's what I was certainly told by teachers and parents when I was sort of misbehaving as as a child, therapist when I was in my twenties. Then I found out that this is just all nonsense. <laughs> it was, and one of the big reasons reasons that we believe that these days is because of this one guy called John Vasconcellos, who was this um, very powerful Californian politician. And he was brought up a Roman Catholic, very strict Roman Catholic, and had a big nervous breakdown. Essentially, he, t he didn't tell anybody this, I, I mean, uh, but, he would, the, the, but he was gay. And uh, being brought up in a Roman Catholic environment, but you know, believing all that stuff, he, was, he, was, he couldn't cope with that fact. And in fact, he died in his 80s um, about 10 years ago and never actually publicly came out, which I thought was a, a terrible, terribly sad thing. Um, but anyway, so he had this breakdown and he um, went to the Esalen Institute, that kind of, uh, you know, in Big Sur in California, the, the great intellectual um, kind of heartland for a lot of these ideas of human potential, these ideas that are based around the fact that humans are amazing and fantastic and uh, the innermost core of man is, is wonderful and all you've got to do is be authentic and find out who you are and you'll be happy. He completely bought all these ideas. But because he was a politician and a very powerful politician at that, he was able, he, he thought, right, I can, I can make a difference here. You know, initially he was just looking at California because he was a Californian assemblyman. And he was like, right, I can, you know, we can really... Um, uh, uh, make, make everybody a lot happier if we get these ideas of self-esteem into schools, into our you know, correctional systems, into our laws, into our programs. So uh, in order to do that, he, um, he, he formed this, we called it the, 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 the task force um, uh, to promote um, self-esteem and personal responsibility. He added the personal responsibility on the end to get the support of the Republicans because they were a bit suspicious of his ideas. Um, and he spent three years um, uh, um, uh, doing this kind of task force. And what the task force basically involved was like going around and taking hearings from kind of slightly crazy Californians who kind of you know believed that 
they were trying to like police officers who were trying to stop people kids taking drugs by telling them they were wonderful and special these ideas uh, uh, but also kind of crucially he promised the legislature that he was going to prove that there was a causative effect that if you had high self-esteem it caused all these pro-social behaviors he called self-esteem a social vaccine and he believed that um, uh, the science would prove that if we raised everybody's self-esteem it would get rid of just a whole array of problems from domestic violence to murder to homelessness to you know you name it it would cure it um, and it was a very neoliberal kind of promise as well he wanted to make us all more competitive more successful competitors in the neoliberal game so you know what happened he three years elapse uh, he announces to the world via press releases and interviews the science is in we've proved it High self-esteem causes these problems. The news goes around the world. Vasco is now a celebrity. He's, in, he's even invited to the Soviet Union <laughs> to speak to uh, the Communist uh, Party about, about how they can raise their self-esteem. Uh, famously, he was on the Oprah show, and uh, Oprah suddenly begins um, evangelizing self-esteem. And it changes everything, this idea. You know, it changes the way we raise our children. It changes the way we teach our children. Um, so I spent a year kind of looking through all the archives. There's a big self-esteem task force archive in um, Sacramento. There's also a big Vasconcelos personal archive in Santa Barbara. And I spent you know, weeks going through these archives. I, spent, uh, I tracked down lots of former members. And there was one member in particular that I wanted to speak to whose name was David um, uh, Shanahoff Kalsa. And he refused to sign the final report. Like, say, all the final reports all signed by the 25 task force members, but his is blank. And I thought, this is odd. So I tracked him down. And he, say, he told me, uh, well, he described uh, Vasco's, uh, what he told the world, as a fucking lie. And he said, actually, uh, the science didn't uh, uh, prove a, a word of what he was saying. It had actually proved. Uh, actually, the science said the evidence for self-esteem causing all these issues was mixed, uh, insignificant, or absent. Uh, and, and I also tracked down this guy, um, Andrew, um, Andrew Smelser, who, uh, sorry, Neil Smelser, Dr. Neil Smelser, who was the coordinator of, all, of the, of the um, it was seven University of California professors who did all this work. And he said they only got involved in the first place because there was this veiled threat from Vasco that they would cut the funding to the universities if they didn't do it. Uh, um, uh, and he said his only motivation was to get the university out of trouble. Uh, so, so, um, he didn't kind of step in when Vasco was telling all these lies. And it was a hugely consequential. And I also tracked down Andrew Mecca, who was his right-hand man, who very cheerily admitted, yes, we did this. You know, we, we, we made a deliberate attempt uh, to, to get out there before the scientists, because what kept the scientists published a proper book with all the science in it, which nobody read, of course, and said, this science doesn't pan out. And they, did, they made a deliberate attempt to, to, to kind of knock that out of the, uh, the, the narrative by you know, they spent $50,000 on PRs, publicists, which is a huge amount in 1989, um, uh, to, to, to get their message out. They had meetings with all the editors, meetings with all the TV producers. Um, and he just cheerily admitted that, that the point was to, you know, to, 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 to stop the truth getting out. Um, and it was an extraordinarily consequential lie as well, because what you see in the psychological data, um, not everybody agrees with this. It's, it's been a quite a controversial finding, but I go through it in some detail in Selfie, and I think they're absolutely right. What you see, um, uh, th 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 there's a standard measure of narcissistic traits in psychology called the NPI scale, the Narcissistic Personality Index. And it's a, it's a kind of question and answer quiz you take, and it judges your level of narcissism and what you see and, and there's a there's a big trove of data in america looking at young people's narcissism scores and these um uh, the, the, these two psychologists professor jean twang and professor keith campbell looked at the data and they find just as when in 1989 1990 when the task force is lies going around the world narcissism rates begin to 
like wobble a bit and then they go up and up and up and up and up right into the 21st century of course which is the selfie generation <laughs> it's the generation that when in 2010 when Apple launched that their new iPhone was going to have what they called at the time a front-facing camera and they uh, said was this the point of this thing is so you can chat to your nan on Skype and FaceTime that's what they thought we were going to do with it but what did the millennial generation do who've been raised by us our generation the, uh, the self-esteem parents this, this generation that raised their kids to believe they were wonderful and special and amazing and there's nothing you can't do they took pictures of themselves and uploaded them onto the internet so that's that really that's that's the whole book in a 35-minute nutshell. <laughs> Sorry if I'm speaking too fast. I can't help it, I'm afraid. So thank you. So yes, if anyone's got any questions, uh, that would be great. With, with sort, of the, sort of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, one thing I've actually noticed is that there's all these generations of people who try and do self-help. Mm. Um, so in America, you have t uh, Anthony Robbins, and over here we have like mindfulness people, and you have Paul, yeah. you have Paul McKenna, yeah. and, you know, and there's a whole troop of... Uh, these type of, you know, to either raise your self-esteem or find yeah. where to place yourself. Does that feature in the book as well? Yeah, it does. Actually, there's a weird, I've got a weird fact. Um, the, 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 um, Samuel Smiles, who wrote the book Self-Help, which was a 19th century Victorian book, I found out it was my great-great-uncle. Amazing. <laughs> anyway, so that's a weird fact. But he, he invented it. And, and again, it's really interesting. It, again, it, it goes back to the idea of the economy deciding who we are. So in the book I talk about the Industrial Revolution, I talk about it briefly, um, but you know, that was the first time that a, a, a middle class, unfortunately it was usually a man, could work really hard and make, you know, make good of themselves, actually improve their lot. So there was a big break from the kind of era of feudal Britain for the first time uh, in the Industrial Revolution. It was this time when you could actually improve your lot and that's when Samuel Smiles um, published self-help, which is this, which was this kind of finger-waggy Victorian tract about hard work and toil. Still very religious, still, still um, preaching that um, you had to kind of, you know, um, uh, be kind of pure inside, uh, kind of morally. Uh, but, but yeah, and that's where it begins, and it kind of doesn't stop. Of course, it becomes accelerated very much um, in America. So the big, the big change for us in the, in the kind of Western individualistic story, because for me, Freud. Um, I, I talk about Freud very briefly in the book, and that's because if you're talking about the lens of individualism, he's kind of, he doesn't really make a lot of difference, actually, weirdly Freud, because his idea was that humans were bad. His ideas were that we had original, that we didn't have original sin, we had the Oedipus complex, and that we, you know, we had all these like horrible, disgusting urges buried deep in our subconscious in order to become perfect, we had to work very hard in psychotherapy. So really he's just an extension of... Um, the Christian ideas of humans as bad. The big change is in America with Carl Rogers, who was this guy that decided that Freud was all wrong and that humans were actually good and amazing. And then you get this whole new rash of self-help books. Um, you know, the, the, I guess it begins really with um, the, uh, the American Christians who, um, this idea that all, in order to kind of become perfect, you just have to have sufficient faith. And there was all the faith healer movements. And there was, I, there was this one faith healer that I write about who I just loved. He's too good to be true. He's like, he's like a character from League of Gentlemen. His name's Smith Wigglesworth, and he was a Yorkshire plumber that went to America and reinvented himself as a, uh, as a, as a faith healer. And he was an absolute cunt. <laughs> like, like he, he, um, there, was a, there was a boy with stomach cancer, and to cure him, he punched him in the stomach, and the guy flatlined, and, and because he didn't live, he was told it was because he didn't have sufficient faith. And so, so you, all these very American ideas of... 
you know, if you didn't succeed, it's because you just didn't want it badly enough. You, you see that sort of emerging in all these ideas. And then, of course, that, that, that sort of, and then, and then from that, they start publishing books about how to become rich. Uh, you know, and, and that comes out of that era, and then you get the, and then, and then, you know, there's a lockstep kind of development from that onto the kind of how to make friends and influence people books of the collective corporation man generation, and we still see it today. You know, we still see these myths. You know, very recently there's been books about grit. We just need to teach our children to have grit, and we're all going to be, f f you know, amazing. And, 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 and another recent one has been neuroplasticity. Our brains are plastic. That means we can do anything we want to do and be anything we want to be. You see Deepak Chopra talking about this stuff. And it's bullshit. It's just not true. I mean, the brain is plastic. But this idea that it means that we can be anything we want to be is an absolute fantasy. And it's the same myth just being retold again and again and again and again, in my view. Do you think the emphasis on the individual has been at the expense of the community? Yes, definitely. I mean, certainly since um, you know, the beginning of neoliberalism. Um, uh, it, uh, it's, good, it's kind of a weird thing because uh, I'll call, you know, one of the big subjects of the book is how um, we absorb our culture, how, we, how our culture is almost like this computer card that we're born into and we absorb it to a certain extent and, we, and its values kind of sink into us. So it's a lot of it's so unconscious. So we, you know, we become these neoliberal selves, but at the same time, because it's unconscious, we can still kind of rebel against some of these ideas. And actually, I think... We're beginning to see, um, I feel like we're at the beginning of the end of that neoliberal period now uh, because the expense to the, you know, the community, sense of community has become too much. Uh, and, you know, so you've got this generation of millennials who are saying, I'm doing everything you're asking of me. I'm working hard. You know, I'm becoming this node of profit-making importance. And what have I got? I've got no house. I've got student debt. And that's when I think you see, you know, on the left, we saw this great Corbyn, you know, the, the great kind of surge of Corbyn in the last election. I think it's young people going, fucking hell, it's not working, is it? And in, and in America, on the right, you've got Trump, you know, saying, I'm going to build a wall with Mexico to stop the immigrants coming in. I'm going to make Apple build their um, uh, factories in California. You know, the, he's, he's making arguments against globalization, which is, of course is a big neoliberal project. So I think, weirdly, Corbyn and Trump are kind of connected in that way. It's just two opposite ends of the political spectrums. It's their first kind of mass rebellion against neoliberalism. That's how, how I kind of see, see, see those things. And Brexit too, of course. They won Brexit on the threat of a million Turks coming in, didn't they? You know. Uh, I don't think there's much link between Trump and Corbyn at no. all. <laughs> okay. I think uh, Trump's idea of bringing jobs back into America is with the same rights that they would have in China, yeah. which is absolutely no rights, no environmental protection. Yeah. So it's just importing China's model. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying that that was his message. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm so just adding yeah, yeah, caveat yeah, no. to your uh, statement. Yeah, yeah, and also, like, yeah, he's, he, what he says and what he's going to do are totally different things. Oh. But that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, right, where was I? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, neoliberalism and Thatcher and, like, Theresa May, these people, they're uh, just bringing uh, a religious agenda to 21st century politics with under a new name and their mission is to totally hate the people of this country who they believe in original because they believe in original sin of course yeah. <laughs> yes. and they on that principle they think people don't deserve anything because they are not lived up to uh, they're not perfect human beings yeah. they're all scum they're all horrible people and therefore we justify our actions 
of austerity upon these people on that reason, because why yeah. would you look after something you hate, basically? And I think the, the architect, because this isn't just magic all these thoughts come from, the architects are institutions like Oxbridge, which institution which selects people, which introduces billionaires who pay for uh, the institutions like Oxbridge to exist yeah. and reinforce that uh, horrible institution on this country yeah. through private schools who then uh, class divide people in education. And from that point of view, they introduce hate and disrespect for other human beings in those institutions, which then they come become fully grown adults, yeah. go into politics and yeah. journalism, of course, because yeah. they're fully occupied by the o uh, Oxbridge set, really. And repeat the cycle of absolute horror and tragedy upon the country. Yeah. And I think we, if we really want progress, we need to end an institution like Oxbridge, yeah. introduce, and then introduce a national university where everyone's equal. I'm not, not seeing from where your background is, is your de definition of what you are, a good person or a bad person, but the fact you worked very hard. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, you. that's interesting stuff. I mean, my previous book, The Heretics, is about why we believe what we believe, and it's about the story that we tell about the world. Um, you know, it's about, it's about how is it that otherwise intelligent people can believe in things that we consider crazy. And, 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 I, and I agree with you on, the, on, on this idea that I, I think a lot of people on the right have this, they have, so, so the kind of thesis of The Heretics was that we all have to feel like we're the moral heroes, no matter who we are. And so the way that people on the right tell themselves that they are moral heroes is by saying people are poor because they deserve to be poor, and I'm rich because I deserve to be rich. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that's, yeah. Thank you. Hi. So I'm actually in education, and I do PSE, so basically social education. Oh, cool. And we're taught all about self-love, and uh, that we should have really high self-esteem. Oh dear. And that, I know it's terrible, <laughs> and we see there, the increasing levels of depression. Yeah. Amongst, I mean, even in my class, I can see that this is a problem. Um, yeah. In my school, we are very, very stressed, all of us. Yeah. And then if those students who go through therapy for depression, for anxiety, they're taught again that self-love is the way forward, that yeah. you're not... It's so, so dangerous, because, because what they're saying is uh, you're feeling unhappy because you don't love yourself well enough. And what that does in that very neoliberal way is it puts the onus back on yeah. you. It's like you are unhappy because you failed. And that's, that's you know, it's very, so, so there's a, you know, the good thing about all this stuff is that, is that, you know, individualism does encourage us to shoot for the stars and achieve amazing things. And, you know, sometimes in the West we do shoot for the stars and achieve amazing things. But mostly life is a story of failure. And, 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 that's, and by that same logic, uh, you know, if all of our success is down to us just shooting for the moon and being happy is just a case of a question of just us loving ourselves. By that same logic, when we fail, when we miss the moon, and when we feel miserable and unhappy and suicidal, it's our fault, it's our failure. I, I, it's not in the book, but I, did, I went on a self-help course a few years ago, um, and um, it, was, it was based on um, the sort of human potential ideas. It was neuro-linguistic programming. And he, and, and, he, um, and, he, and he did this video, um, and at the end he said, his, his parting message was, do you know Gandhi had 24 hours in his day 
and so do you. And everyone's like, yeah, amazing. So in that moment, you feel like inspired. And that's true. It's true. Gandhi had 24 hours. I've got 24 hours. I can be fucking Gandhi. And then like for literally for like six hours, you're walking on air. There's all the things I can do. And of course, two weeks later, when you're just an idiot farting in front of question time, getting annoyed, you go, well, I've failed to be Gandhi. It just turns it into your fault. And, and that's why I think these ideas in education are so very toxic. Because what they're saying is, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's because we've lost these ideas of community and togetherness because there's so much pressure on the individual. We feel unhappy uh, and we blame those failures on ourselves. And then, and then what do they tell us? What do the teachers and the therapists tell us? Oh, it's your fault. You just need to learn to love yourself. Oh, okay. It's really, it really makes me, it's, I think it's so toxic. I mean, so where the book ends up is when I talk about, as I'm sure you're familiar with, the big five personality traits. And so my personal journey through life has been, you know, like I failed my ex exams at school. I didn't go to university. I got in trouble with the police. I was an alcoholic. And all, that, all through that time, it was like, oh, you've got low self-esteem. You've got low self-esteem. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm aware that I mean, a lot of these ideas in, in therapy don't, uh, have gone away. But in the 90s, they were very much there. Um, and... Um, uh, so then when I kind of found out about the big five personality traits, you know, so, so there's this idea from psychology that partly because of who we are genetically and partly because of childhood experiences over which we have no control, we have really disabled personality traits. So who you are at 18 and who you are at 80 is going to be fairly, unless something terrible happens to you, like you go and you, you are sexually abused or you go and serve in the front line in Iraq you're going to be pretty much the same person. And, and my personality trait is I'm high neuroticism. And being high neuroticism is basically goes hand in hand with having low self-esteem. So I found out that actually this is not a broken part of me. This is me. This is who I am. And at the time, when you first find out, you, you do, you're in despair because there's actually a book by this guy called um, Professor Daniel Nettle called Personality. And there's a line in it where he says that being high in neuroticism is basically having a lifetime of almost unremitting psychological pain. So you think, oh, for fuck's sake, I might be exaggerating, it's a paraphrase, but it was like, that's how it felt. Uh, uh, but then you start thinking, it became a relief, because it's like, so I can stop trying to change myself now. And, and I agree, so I think what, what, where I end up in the book is where it sounds like what you're talking about is this idea of self-acceptance, but not in that horrible, this is just me being me, deal with it. It's like, okay, I know I'm a bit broken, and I can be a prick, and it's just, being aware of it, accepting it, and not beating yourself up for it. Uh, yeah, I was wondering how exactly you were defining uh, individualism and uh, how it relates to um, social conformity. So you mentioned, for example, the uh, people being hounded off social media, yeah. um, as, uh, which is actually as a result of not, not conforming with um, a kind of group standard. Yeah. Uh, so there seems to be a bit of a paradox there. That, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, I, I wondered what you thought, whether you thought this sort of individualism actually reinforces social conformity in some, in some ways. Um, yeah, it does seem like a paradox. That's why I begin with the tribal self, because I think before all this acculturation happens, before we become Confucian or Aristotelian or whatever, we're tribal. So underneath everything, we're tribal. So, 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 so there is a tension between those ideas. Um, so, 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 but, you know, so I think being tribal is universal. We're all prejudiced, biased, groupish people, unfortunately, um, to a greater or lesser extent. That's just how, how we are. But on top of that, you know, in the West, we're a bit more individualistic, and in the East, they're a bit less so. I mean, and I, you know, and, and, and it, I mean, it was interesting, even within um, when they do studies about people in America, uh, the people that are from the southern states, which comes from a more of a background of individualistic kind of 
cowboyishness. They're more aggressive and violent than in the north, which is much more agricultural. And the same in modern China. So you, you still see these effects happening, kind of today. But I think, but but, but you're right. Beneath all of that. Fundamentally, the thing that we have got in common is a, all around the world is that we are tribal and groupish, and I think that's what we, you know, we, we do see these. There's always this pressure to conform, you know, into the kind of ro the, the, the roles of our tribe. Absolutely, yeah. So, but yeah, I can see how it feels like these are different ideas. But I think it's just layers. <laughs> Hi. Well, um, thanks for the talk. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Good, thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to try and speak in a low voice because obviously <laughs> I want to establish my status. Oh, God, but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if I could just bounce a theory off on you um, yes. very quickly. I've been struggling, um, you know, as a, as a qualified old fart. I, I do mix with the millennials occasionally. Yes. Yeah. But I'm, I'm still struggling to understand why it was that such a large amount of, uh, of youngsters actually voted for Jeremy Corbyn, what was the reason? Not, it wasn't surprising that they did. Yes. And I have a little theory. What's the it, theory? That, well, it's that it wasn't just about tuition fees or anything else. It was actually about the fact that a lot of young people are trained by the social media to place emotion before logic. Oh. So we all chase likes, don't we? <laughs> yes, we all we do, chase yeah. likes. Yeah. Uh, well, the, 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 most of us are on social media, so yeah. aware of likes. And so, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if you don't get the likes, it's sort of a life-changing experience. Yeah. Now, Jeremy Corbyn comes over as a very benign, well, at least he, has, he did in the campaign, a benign, avuncular figure. Yes. So do you think that that actually had anything, any difference, made any difference I, to I think me? these things always make a bit, a bit of a difference, but I also think that, that, that genuinely neoliberalism has reached its limits, especially after the global financial crisis, and there is genuinely a move. I think for young people, it, it, you know, that, as I say, they, are, they have become neoliberal. They are doing all the things that the, our culture is telling them to do, and it's not working for them for the first time. They're not getting the houses. They, they're leaving university with tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt or whatever it is. So, and, I, and, I, so, and I do think, you know, we, we've seen those rumbles, and I, and I, you know, also, as I said, I think Brexit and Trump is the people on the right wing. It's the, it's the reaction to the same events in the world, which is that, hang on a minute, everything's going to shit here. This near, near, we've reached the end of this neoliberal kind of project. But yeah, certainly kind of groupishness is, always comes into these things in terms of who we vote for. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that kind of thought leaders' influences in those worlds are making, you know, are attracting. Uh, thank you. Um, where do you place the... Um the rise of identity politics in this whole dynamic. Do you see oh. that as a kind of back? <laughs> do ask you about identity politics. Well, I mean, if, if a group I'm a member of is more important than me as an individual, yeah. is that a backlash against this? Well, I mean, I, this is like totally theory. Like, so I'll caveat this by saying this is just an idea that I have, and I'm not saying it's true, it's just what I think. But, but, but I do, I, 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 I can't fail to note that there is a, that there is a strain of, sort of thought and identity politics which is inherently individualistic it is this is my group this is me and you know uh, you it's trying to privilege the group you pri 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 yeah, privilege you you know i mean an in sort of intersectionality is you know uh, th there's a there's a quality to that that does feel individualistic and again you know when you when you look at the psychological data you see this is huge rise in individualistic beliefs since the 1980s i mean which is not to say of course that 
the, the, the ideas and the struggle isn't based on real problems in the, in the real world, but I just feel like this is a new way that the left is reacting to that. It just feels quite individualistic. And, and, and the other idea that I write about a bit in the book is this idea of some of the campus politics stuff that's going on. And again, totally with absolute respect to the fact that they are, are also a response to genuine problems structurally in the world. Right, just to make that clear. But also it feels like um, th there is that strain of narcissism to it too. It's, that, it's, it's the rise of this idea that myself and my beliefs are sacred. They are as God. I mean, that's a human potential idea that we are all as gods. And the, 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 the level of violence and aggression that is kind of unleashed against people who don't absolutely line up with their views, it almost feels as if it's a kind of a, a kind of heretical response. It's like, how dare you challenge my worldview? How dare you challenge my beliefs? And it's an almost violent sometimes, well, not even almost, it is sometimes, this violent response. And I was growing up in, obviously, in the 80s and 90s, and so I'm, I'm, a I'm a lefty from those times, and we were, the, the idea of, political violence to us was absolutely kind of heretical and it does trouble me that we're seeing a bit more, just on the fringes, but it's, it, worry, it worries me that we're seeing a bit more support of these ideas. And I do, I do you know, I, I, I think you can see the influence of the human potential movement and the self-esteem movement in just the very passionate kind of angry responses you get over there. And in fact, I, in the book I ask um, Keith Campbell, who is one of the main guys who's studied this rise of narcissism, and he just flat refused to even discuss it with me. He said, as a professor at one of these colleges, I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, he's you know, genuinely scared for his job to even say anything about it at all, which I think tells its own story. Yeah. Just two points. Uh, Western civilization produced individualism. Uh, well, it yeah, produced it's Western not, individualism. I'm not finished. Yeah. I'm not finished. Yeah, sorry, right, okay. So the question is, if individualism is a real problem now, going forward, what's going to happen? And secondly, what sort of a world can we have when there's no work for people? Everything's been automized. People mm. are being eliminated. Mm. Yeah, well, again, that's something I do write but, about in the book. I actually went to Silicon Valley. And yeah, but, but I mean, you, your, your vision is very much a vision up to the moment from the past, which is very good. Yeah. But where, where will this go now? Well, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm afraid I just I deal in the past. <laughs> I don't see into the future. Uh, I, unfortunately, I wish I could. I'd be a lot more, uh, I'd be, be a lot better off. Um, but but I, so I don't know, unfortunately. Ap apart from what I've kind of already spoken about, how I kind of, I've kind of, I'm seeing a lot of this surprising, you know, uh, churn in the political scene very much from the lens of thinking this is the beginning of the end of this neoliberal kind of globalization era um so what was the other part of your question where are we going and oh yeah the, the automation yeah i mean i was actually and sort of the, the last chapter in the book i actually went to silicon valley and met these young people there who are currently delighting all the in all the disruption they're unleashing <laughs> in, into the world and it's extraordinary to, to see just the lack of any emotional connection they have with this you know with the kind of the gutting of the middle class because of this you know automation they just don't and, and, I, and I met um, a young woman called Kate Levy who works for a company called Impossible Foods who's making vegan burgers and she I mean and she, she she told me this story that she said um, uh, she was at a New Year's Eve party and, there, and all, all these young tech people were kind of delighting in this new invention that was being worked on that was going to make all the food robotically, like make food robotically. And she said, well, hang on a minute, isn't that a problem? Because, you know, we, we employ millions and millions of 
chefs and cooks in this country, isn't that a disaster? And they looked at her, she said, as if she was just an idiot, like, what are you talking about? So there's a very dangerous idea in that part of the world that progress is just brilliant and great and wonderful and fantastic. It's disruption and there's no conception that actually, again, it's so, it's so individualistic, there's no, there's no sense in Kate's words of the, of the ripple effect that all their behaviours are having in the world. So again, I know I'm talking about the past, <laughs> but that's my job, I'm afraid. So, so yeah, that's a, but yeah, automation is a massive, massive issue. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.